You're listening to Infinite Banking Radio with your host, Patrick Donahoe. You know, there's solutions out there to every one of the financial problems that Americans are facing today, and those solutions are right underneath their nose. The Infinite Banking concept has helped hundreds of thousands of individuals manage their hard-earned money effectively using time-tested financial principles that cannot fail. The intent of this podcast is to awaken these time-tested principles and reinstate certainty into the financial makeup of Americans. Our society is saturated in debt. Our portfolios are made up of the same speculative investments and theories that have failed us time and time again. The banking and securities industries have ruled financial planning for decades, and the only true benefactors are them. The infinite banking concept has proven to be the ideal solution. Hi, this is Patrick Donahoe. Thank you for downloading uh, this month's episode. We are we are glad to have uh, Dr. Bob Murphy with us. Bob, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Not not a problem. We're uh, we're excited to to see where this where this conversation is going to lead. For those of you uh, who who have not listened to our podcast uh, before, please go back and, uh, and and download our previous episodes. We also have a, a new blog on our website, which has an extensive amount of information about the infinite banking concept. Uh, how you can learn more. There's different videos and articles and things of that nature. But today, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Murphy is, uh, is, is not in the insurance industry. And uh, he, he wrote a book this past summer discussing the, the infinite banking concept and uh, how it pertains to our current uh, monetary policy. Uh, but before we get into that, I, I'd like to give Bob a moment to, uh, to just introduce himself and let, uh, let the listeners know uh, who he is, what his background is, uh, and why it's important to uh, to listen to his insight uh, on this topic. Thanks. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm not in the insurance industry. I'm an economist. I got my PhD in economics from New York University. Then I taught for three years at Hillsdale College. And then I left to go in the financial sector. I worked there uh, for a little less than a year doing things like uh, research analysis for our, our clients and, and managing the stock portfolios. And then I became, uh, a few years ago, I left that and, and just became an, an independent consultant. I have written a few books for the layperson, and, uh, for example, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Great Depression and New Deal. And uh, I do a lot of work for the Mises Institute, which is uh, sort of a, a bastion of what's called Austrian economics, and maybe we'll get into that in the podcast. And yeah, just fairly recently, about a year ago, I met a guy, Carlos Lara, who's the co-author of this book, and he introduced me the ideas of Nelson Nash and the infinite banking concept. I was actually skeptical at first. I think a lot of people are, and I you know, saw the light, as it were, and we realized that there was actually a, a pretty strong affinity between the infinite banking concept and, and what the Austrians have been trying to do on the uh, political and economic front. And so that's what the book is about. And I know Nel, you know, Nel, Nelson Nash has obviously proclaimed, you know, even in the first edition of his book, that he he subscribed to that Austrian uh, that Austrian theory. And uh, and Leonard uh, Leonard Reed was one of his original mentors, uh, who was who was the founder of the Foundation for Economic Education. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that was one of the things that made me sort of give this Nelson Nash guy. A chance, a chance. Because <laughs> oh, I was reading his book, and it, it was it was ironic. It was I was reading his book, and you know, becoming your own banker, and it was like, you know, it just I didn't I, I didn't agree with some of the stuff. Where I just wasn't sure if it was right, but it seemed like man, this guy is really spot on on, on like his general worldview. And then as I said, just just thinking it through, and then realizing I mean, part of the problem with 
with coming to Nelson Nash with fresh eyes is that you just you're so used to thinking about things the way the conventional wisdom tells you to think about it and, and Nash's approach is it's very simple, but it's just you're it's not what you're expecting, and so it's kinda of hard to get in. So but yes, you're exactly right. Nelson Nash himself uh is a strong advocate of Austrian economics and, and I think all Carlos and I did was just sort of reinforce that affinity and, and show that it's it's not a coincidence, in other words, that Nelson Nash was a fan of Austrian economics and wrote that book. And and then what we're arguing for the Austrians is they should really look at this IBC. That, you know, in other words, it's not just some household financial strategy that actually it's, it's something that if more and more people did, it would help the Austrians um, in, in their goals and achieving a, a stronger economy and, and more limited government. And I, and I actually do want to touch on that. But in in your book, I mean, for, for probably half, if not three quarters of the book, it, it focuses on some of the flaws in, uh, in, in the fundamentals. And I, I kind of put that in quotations as that's often quoted by, you know, the, uh, the, the, the individuals in, in those types of positions that deal with monetary policy. But what, what are in that first part of the book, what would you say the, the you know, one or two of these of these flaws are with with the fundamentals of our, our monetary system? And how that's kind of, and I know this will be a couple questions in one question, but how, how that's led to some of the, the issues in our economy right now. Well, what we do in the book, um, and, and incidentally, the book is called How, How Privatized Banking Really Works, and the, the author is, is Carlos Lara and myself. Um, what we do there is, in the beginning, we just try to walk the, the reader through uh, just how a market economy works. And it's you know it's not a textbook or anything. It's very short little lessons, but just to explain you know how it is that just three people operating in a society they develop private property and what function that serves, and then how money just emerges spontaneously. That it, it, no, there's no record of of a king or a government just saying one day, hey, let's start using money. That, that no people naturally in a, in a market economy develop that on their own, and, and people of course gravitate towards gold and silver. And then we just tell the story about what governments have done systematically to wean people off of the market monies, which were gold and silver, and to get us all to start using these pieces of paper that aren't backed up by anything. I mean, we just take it for granted now, especially people that you know are fairly young, that yeah, the money is just pieces of paper that the government prints up or the central bank prints up, and we don't we don't think that that's unusual. But actually, historically, that is unusual. People 100 years ago. You know, would have thought that was insane, um, and so that's that's what we walk through. And then also this issue of banking, and again, it's it's sort of an esoteric concept, but it's crucial to understand why do we have business cycles, and why does the economy just move all over the place, and what the heck happened in the housing boom years, and part of what's going on with all that is what's called fractional reserve banking, and that that's something else that is is really insidious about our financial system, where to put it shortly that. You go and you put a thousand dollars in the bank, and they certainly don't put it somewhere in a drawer with your name on it. They lend out a large fraction of it, and so that itself leads the economy to be very vulnerable. That's why bank runs are a problem, and that's why, in a sense, the whole financial system is just very uh, shaky. And we just argue in the book that if people sort of seceded from that Wall Street commercial bank nexus and put their savings into insurance policies. Then uh, you know the way that Nelson Nash recommends. Then actually, not only are you doing your your household a favor, but you're also strengthening the economy. Well, I think in your in in your book, uh, as as I I've read it actually twice now. 
but uh, it, it does a, a really good job of of explaining how that that artificial creation of money is uh, is catastrophic to to any any monetary system, and it's and it's still surprising to me that that most individuals just are are completely naive to the fact that that's what's going on in banking. Is that you know money is obviously a byproduct of of production uh, based on either goods sold or services provided. Uh, however, when a bank receives that money, they're able to leverage it to a point and actually create money on an artificial basis without any type of production or good backing that transaction. Yeah, and it's it's funny when when people hear that. On the one hand, you get two reactions when you're explaining this issue of fractional reserve banking, how you know banks create money out of thin air, is the the way you put it in a soundbite. You get two reactions. On the one hand, people say, "No, you, you must be wrong. Banks can't do that." Or you get more sophisticated people that say, yeah, of course they do. Everybody knows that, you know, <laughs> and they act like it's not a big deal. So it's to try to reconcile those two things and say, yeah, it, banks do do that. And it, people should be shocked by that because it is amazing and scandalous that banks can literally just expand or contract the money supply based on their transactions. And it does have serious economic consequences. It's not just some trivial little, you know, anecdote that we're, that we're mentioning there. So specifically, again, what happens to make sure the, the listeners of the podcast understand what we're talking about. So if I go and put $1,000 in the bank, my checking account balance goes up by $1,000. So I'm walking around town thinking I've got $1,000 in my bank account and I can go write checks on it or use my debit card or whatever. But then if the bank goes out and lends, let's say, 900 of it to somebody else, it credits that person's checking account balance. And so now that person's walking around town thinking he's got $900 of new money. And so just by the act of that bank extending a loan to somebody, 900 new dollars have been magically created in, in this little community, and that pushes up prices. But it's not just a matter of price inflation. It's also the issue that when the bank does this and, and lends out money that, in a sense, belongs to other depositors, it lowers interest rates, right? Because the only way the bank can make more loans is to, to reduce the price that it's charging. And so according to the Austrian economists, that's that's not good for the economy. You're not doing the economy any favors when you artificially lower interest rates because interest rates are prices. They're a signal, as it were, uh, telling entrepreneurs basically how much real savings there are available to borrow and invest. Well, I mean, so interest we, rates should be derived based on supply and demand, right? If, we're, if it, we're, yeah, right. So, I mean, by the, just for an analogy, you know, if let's say that, uh, you know, the economy's bad and there's a lot of hungry people, if the government just came along and said, you know what, it would really help everybody out if food were just a lot cheaper. And so let's pass a law saying now be half as much as it was yesterday. And the same goes for milk and bread and eggs. You know, every every uh, store owner has to cut in half the price they charge on any kind of food item. And this will really help people. Well, you know, anyone who has the, the faintest inkling of free market economics knows that that wouldn't be doing anybody a favor, least of all the poor people that that would just screw up everything, that the prices would all be wrong, merchants would stop selling the food, and then the poor people wouldn't be able to get anything. All the shelves would be empty. And so it's not the exact same thing when it comes to interest rates because there the problem is when the government, you know, when the Federal Reserve, let's say, wants to cut interest rates, they say, oh, the Federal Reserve met today and decided to, to cut the interest rate target to give a boost to the economy. Uh, they don't. It's not a standard price control. They don't just say we better not catch a bank charging less money what they do is they create new money out of thin air through the, you know, the process I described where it's more complicated when the Fed does it. They buy assets and, and inject reserves into the system. But it's all, 
basically them just creating new money and dumping it out of the economy. Well, and, and, and so, it's and it's ironic that you say that because obviously the 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 FOMC is is today, and uh, they're supposed well it, it's been going on, but they're supposed to make an announcement today as to you know what the Federal Reserve is going to do to to help help the economy. But they they've obviously implemented a, a lot of very aggressive policy over the last couple of years trying to stimulate the economy, uh, but it but it hasn't. It hasn't worked, and obviously, as you're as you're talking right now, it, it, this is not necessarily a recent phenomenon as far as the interference uh, in in the free market system. I mean, this has been going on since the the, the early 1900s, and you know, in, in your opinion, has it has it ever worked? No, it it hasn't. I mean, and that's just that's just it. That the so again, the Aust- the basic Austrian story is that a lot of people just think it's oh, just you know, fact of nature that the economy has these booms and busts. You know that there's there's times of prosperity when everyone's got a job and incomes are rising, business is booming, and then for some inexplicable reason the floor falls out and everything crashes, and people just think it's due to psychology or something. <laughs> but no, the Austrians, you know, the Austrians say no, it's it's due to the fact that the government and the commercial banking system artificially mess with interest rates, and they can flood the economy with money. And that pushes down interest rates and tells entrepreneurs that, hey, go ahead and borrow money and start long-term projects. And then when, for whatever reason, the Fed and the commercial banks tighten up, then interest rates skyrocket, and then the economy crashes. So that's not a feature of the regular market economy. That's because of this intervention. So And, and, it's, no. and it's happened over and over and over again. I mean, I know that, that, that uh, Ludwig von Mises is the, the original one that had, had that thought. And then you know F. Uh, F. A. Hayek got a, a Nobel Prize by by talking about it, and then Murray Rothbard kind of took took the mantle, and now you guys are taking the mantle, basically saying the the same thing. So I mean, in in your opinion, why why hasn't the the public uh, recognized this? And I and and obviously today with you know the the progress of the Mises Institute and and fee and kind of what Ron Paul has has been doing. Uh, there, there's more interest in the in the Austrian in theory, but what my, my original question is: why, why don't you think individuals have really caught on to individuals raising these red flags and saying, "Hey, this is what's going on. This is how it can be changed." I mean, what are your thoughts in regards to that? Right. Well, it's a it's a it's a complicated question. I think I think there's two main things. So on the one hand, um, well, you you can't blame the public for not agreeing on all this stuff because even the supposed experts, you know, PhD economists can't agree on this stuff. I mean, there's all the jokes about if you lay in a, if you had economists and laid them end to end for a thousand miles, I wouldn't reach a conclusion, that sort of thing. <laughs> that, um, you know, it, 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 but the reason though, is that first of all, it's, it's ideological, right? That the, this isn't just some abstract, uh, you know, academic issue, like, like a bunch of physicists or chemists arguing about the expansion of a gas or something. I mean, it's, Whatever your answers are, I mean, that's going to affect certain people. If you think the government should cut spending, you know, that's going to have implications. If you think the government should raise taxes, that's going to have other implications. So a lot of this stuff, of course, there are special interests involved, and people have their own political views, and that colors all this. But even beyond that, one of the basic problems is that you can't have a controlled experiment in macroeconomics. So right now, you know, like Paul Krugman and I, couldn't agree on what caused the Great Depression, even though you'd think, well, gee, we've had 70-plus years to study that. We have all the data at our fingertips. Why can't we just you know, reason it out? And it's because you can you could always come up with some plausible story about what caused it, 
And the only way you could really know is if you could turn back the, the clock and then, you know, go back in time and rerun things and just say, well, what would happen if Herbert Hoover had done this and that instead of doing what he did? And then we could watch what happened, you know? So it's, so that's, that's part of the problem. Sure. And again, why the Keynes, I mean, let, just to give a better example, Obama came in and he had his big stimulus plan, right? And he said, or his economist said, hey, if, if we run this thing, we don't think unemployment is going to break 8%. Well, of course, it, it hit, broke 10%. Yeah. But that doesn't mean all those Keynesian economists said, oh, my gosh, it's our bad. You know, we totally wrecked things. No, they just said, whoa, the economy is worse than we thought it was. It's a good thing we put the stimulus through. Otherwise, you know, unemployment <laughs> might have been 15%. And, I mean, that sounds ridiculous to you and me because we think Keynesian economics is stupid. But if you think it's true, well, then that's what you're going to say. You know, sure. so it's, you know, we can't prove that they're wrong. It's just you can say, well, you know, the Austrian School of Economics makes a lot more sense to me. I think that they're a lot more careful and they – it's a more realistic theory, and you know, and as you say, I mean, there is. I don't mean to suggest that it's all just nihilism. I mean, we can look, and you're right. I have there, to my knowledge, there is not a single example of an economy that was mired in a really bad recession, and then the government just started running huge deficits, and that quickly turned things around. And that's and and perfect proof of that is what happened in the in the Great Depression. Right, exactly. I mean, they contrary to uh, popular belief. Herbert Hoover was actually an interventionist. He did a lot more than any previous U.S. president had done to try to, you know, fix things. And then, of course, FDR just upped the ante. Followed suit. And, yeah. and, and that's, you know, in my opinion, it's not a coincidence that when you had those back-to-back administrations of really interventionist U.S. presidents, you had a decade of terrible economic uh, stagnation. And yet, you know, the Keynesians are going to point to that and say, no, that was a success story. Look at how bad things were. And then they got a little bit better when FDR really expanded the scope of government. And they, you know, they just sort of point to an alternate universe and say things would have been even worse had <laughs> FDR not intervened so much. Sure. So, again, you, there's no way you can prove it for sure. All I can say is, you know, for example, the Federal Reserve. I mean, it was founded in 1913, and then it started really expanding in the late 1920s, and then we had the worst business cycle in U.S. history. So – if you're trying to prove that the Federal Reserve is a bad thing and it disrupts the economy, to me, that's kind of a smoking gun. And, you know, but yet people are going to say, oh, no, that's just a coincidence that, you know, the, the Fed actually helped things or the Fed just needed to inflate more in the 30s and that would have fixed everything up. So. And, I, and I think now, I mean, it, it's it's good that, you know, with, with Ron Paul trying to introduce uh, bills to, to audit the Federal Reserve um, and, and having more support that he's had in the, that he's had in the past. And I think with with uh, with fees presence on the internet, with the Mises Institute's presence on the internet, with you know Tom Woods writing some books that have become very popular because of you know the the, the nullification movement that that's been created, I think that people are starting to kind of wake up to to the idea, and and hopefully there'll be some change. But it'll be it'll be interesting to see today that you know with interest rates at, at all time lows, whether it's you know the discount rate or the federal funds rate, to see what the Federal Reserve is is uh, is going to to do because right now it's like who who knows what they they're going to do. Um, but I kind of want to maybe shift shift gears because I think now we've talked extensively about you know how how this whole idea of government intervention in the monetary system has caused a lot of the problems that we've had. Uh, it, it's it's very 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 clear in your book. It's a very easy very easy read. To really understand this, this whole idea of uh, you know government intervention in, into the monetary system, how the Federal Reserve was was established, 
um, you know, what, what it's caused, how it's facilitated these, these different business cycles. Okay, but the, the solution, obviously, you kind of have two, two point of views when it comes to the solution. Obviously, one solution is you, you can uh, abolish, uh, you know, just the fiat currency idea. Uh, you can go back to a sound money system backed by some sort of commoditization, whether it's gold or silver or, or something else, or maybe a partial collateralization. Um, or, or you can kind of take the route which you guys pointed out in your book, which is, hey, at, at a kind of a grassroots level, uh, individuals can start to create their own sound money system, which if there was enough people doing it, would have an impact on what the Federal Reserve uh, is is doing. So wh- why don't you explain a, a little bit about that? Well, sure. So again, just to reiterate, the, the basic problem is that with the Federal Reserve and the uh, commercial banking system operating on a fractional reserve system, they can expand and contract the money supply. And so that causes prices to gyrate, and it also, uh, by flowing through the credit markets, makes interest rates move up and down with no relationship to how much people are actually saving. So that's what causes the boom-bust cycle. So you're right. The, the only way you're really going to fix that permanently is if you return money and banking back to the private sector. You just close down the Federal Reserve, have money go back to being gold and silver, and so forth. Uh, but the problem with that, and that's what the Austrian economists have been doing and been, been championing those policies for decades. But the problem, of course, is that there's a lot of powerful forces in place that don't want that to happen. And there, you know, there's a lot of really rich and powerful people who benefit from the current system, and yeah. that's why the system has developed this way. It wasn't just some you know, cosmic coincidence. And so you, in order to get that, you'd have to have a really strong public support for your position, have just a big public outcry. And it, it just, it's a very daunting process. It seems like it would take years. So what we point out in our book is that there's things you can do right away, in particular if you start saving up and putting your funds into a, a permanent life insurance product or whole life policy, and then you finance your major purchases out of that instead of going to a traditional bank or if you want to buy a car, for example, instead of going to a conventional auto lender and getting a loan to buy the car, and instead you're borrowing from your own uh, insurance policy, well, then you, in effect, are not contributing to the problem because the only way the commercial banks can expand the money supply and lower interest rates is if people come up to them and take out new loans. So the more people who are following Nelson Nash's strategy, those are fewer potential customers that the banks can lend to. And so that's that's the idea of our of our book that you're sort of taking your own finances and, and seceding from the system. You, the, the Fed can still do whatever it wants. Obviously, you can't stop Bernanke from buying assets and creating more dollars. But the idea here is that you can at least check what the commercial banks are able to do by not giving them your business and, and contributing to the problem. And your and your guys' magic number is is ten percent. And I know you alluded to the fact that that's kind of an arbitrary arbitrary number. But just kind of going back to how interest rates should be created uh, or or come up with is because of obviously individuals demanding loans um, and, and vice versa. And so that that obviously should deal with the, the fluctuation of interest rates. But now as you see a, a larger population utilizing loan provisions against uh, the cash value of permanent life insurance policies, it limits the amount of, of use of car loans, mortgages, credit cards, et cetera. Right. I mean, and it all is sort of a, a, a virtuous circle instead of a vicious cycle of, yeah, the more people, so you're right, the, the, the sort of catchphrase that we have on our newsletter is building the 10%, and that's the phrase we use throughout the book. 
meaning that we want to, we just need to get 10% of the population to see what we're talking about, and that would be enough because in the grand scheme of things, it's it's not like the average person really gets all into politics and ideology and cares about these things. Most people are just too busy with their day-to-day lives to get into this. And so we think that if we really just had a solid 10% of people who were small business owners or, you know, just uh, perhaps writers for newspapers and so forth, or maybe you know, analysts on Wall Street, what, what have you, we just get a solid 10% of people from various walks of life to see things this way, that that would be enough to turn public opinion. Because our message is not unusual, or, or it is unusual, I should say, but it's, there's nothing weird about our message. We're just saying the way you get a healthier economy is the government needs to stop spending so much, needs to cut taxes, and households need to save more and, and be more frugal. And that's and that's our message. <laughs> you know. Whereas it's the politicians who are saying things that are crazy, namely that, oh, the way we solve this problem of overspending is we just need to spend more, which makes no sense. <laughs> and I think that, you know, obviously with, with us, uh, with Paradigm Life being uh, kind of a, a several years in, into teaching the infinite banking concept, it, uh, it, it really kind of creates a different dynamic inside of the family or inside of the business because access to credit can lead to overspending. And right now it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's perfectly seen. There's a lot of evidence with, uh, with the behavior of, of society and how they use credit, whether it's the amount of credit card debt that they hold, uh, student loan debt, um, the, the basically over, more, spending more than they, they make on a monthly basis. I mean, it's, it's kind of getting out of hand, but the infinite banking concept teaches some, some financial responsibility as far as being subject to repaying yourself as, to, as opposed to repaying uh, somebody else. Because obviously, you know, credit card, someone can bankrupt uh, out of a credit card or bankrupt out of a, a car loan, but you can't necessarily bankrupt uh, out of your personal banking system. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. And, it's, and that's part of the magic, if you will, of, of IBC. And a lot of people get hung up on some of the illustrations in, in Nelson Nash's book. To, you know, to show that what well, you if you just instead of borrowing from a car dealer or whatever, if you if you just saved up and then bought the car with cash, uh, you know p- part of the reason that works and it's so much better in the long run is that you're not borrowing, it's that you're saving saving before you buy a car. You're deferring your gratification, and so I mean that's that's obvious. That's a, an ancient point, and everybody you know going back to Ben Franklin and Proverbs knows that, and yet that somehow has been lost where. Where now people think you're a sucker if you save up and pay for cash for something. They think that you know you're somehow showing you're you're not sophisticated, and and yeah, I mean during the housing bubble years, I mean I, I was wasn't immune from this myself. It was all this this new paradigm, and you had all these people talking about derivatives and how great they were and everything. And it, and like you can always when, when times are good, and they're, especially if they're fueled by the Fed pumping in new money and everything seems great, you can always come up with these rationalizations for why this this is different and that you don't need to be responsible with your spending. And then when the rug falls out, of course, everybody says, gee, what were we thinking? And unfortunately, I think that's what the U.S. economy is in store for. Again, I don't know if it's going to hit in the next six months or maybe a year or two down the road, but I think there's going to be another crash and people are going to look back and say, how could we possibly have been arguing for trillion-dollar deficits? What were we thinking? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think you go back to, you know, 2000, 2000, uh, 2007, 2008, when we were kind of at the height of this, uh, of this housing boom, which was fueled by this kind of flawed, flawed monetary policy. Um, and, and individuals were on, on, cloud, uh, on cloud nine. And uh, it's, it's unfortunate, but a lot of the clients that we've, we've worked with are, are, in fact, real estate investors. And a lot of them were burned in, in 2007 and 2008. 
But what it's really taught them is, is how quickly things can change. And it's taught them that they were overspending. They were living outside of their means. They were living on this, this credit-based system. And what's, what's good now is that they, they've become more conservative, not necessarily by force, but just because they don't want to go through you know, the, the same turmoil that they went through over the last couple of years. And so hopefully that's kind of fueled a higher savings rate, uh, lack of utilization of, of credit, and hopefully set them up so that if there is another type of downturn in, in the economy, that they'll be prepared for it. And I think that, uh, you know, and I'm not sure you knew this, but uh, Tony Robbins came out. I'm not sure if you're a fan of, of Tony Robbins. Have you, have you ever heard him speak live before? I've never heard him live. No. Oh, geez. You need to, if you ever had a chance to hear it, he, it it's amazing what, what he's able to, to do to a crowd. But anyway, he came out with a video. Uh, there was kind of an impromptu uh, video that, that talked about his, his concern for people that have money uh, in the market. And obviously, Kiyosaki, you know, about seven, eight years ago, came out with his prophecy book and reiter- reiterated a lot of those points in, with his book with, uh, with Donald Trump. And then now with the conspiracy of the rich, that, that type of uh, he, uh, his, his new book that came out, he, he alludes to that as well. So you're seeing a, a lot more mainstream type of authors and, and financial, you know, quote unquote gurus that are, that, are, that are alluding to the fact that there could be another collapse coming in, coming in the future. So as you kind of investigated the, the infinite banking concept uh, in preparation for the book that you, you wrote, uh, what were maybe some of the, the things that you saw that would help individuals uh, prepare for, for a potential uh, cyclical downturn like the one that, that's occurred over the last couple of years? Well, I think the big thing is people need to save more. They need to, uh, you know, wherever they can, cut back on non-essential uh, expenditures. And and also, just a g- general comment I make to people is that you shouldn't just view your income as just some fixed number. I think a lot of people, they have a, a nine-to-five job with some company, and they come home and turn on the TV and, and think, well, you know, I got my income, and I just hope I don't get laid off. <laughs> and there's all kinds of stuff you can do, you know, on the weekends or whatever, depending on your, your aptitude and your interests, that you can bring in more income. And I think people should start developing those alternate avenues now because if I'm right and we do have another big drop, a lot of people are going to get laid off and there's going to be 15 people trying to start, you know, that dog walking business or try to sell those things on eBay that you're, you've been dabbling with for the last year. So you really want to get in now before everyone else does because they all get laid off. Um, beyond that, I mean, it's, I do think I agree with you and Nelson Nash, of course, that the, that a, a way to structure your savings is, is to set up, a whole life policy, and that's a great place. You know, if you have a windfall, it's a great place to dump some extra money. And if you need it, you know, if you see some particular thing, like let's say for some reason you, you say, oh, I think I think price inflation is really going to kick in, and I want to go get some gold and silver coins. I mean, your money is not locked away. If you put it into your whole life policy, you can get it the next day, basically. You know, they send you a check right away. So I, I think and purchase your place. silver, purchase your gold, purchase you know whatever you're going to buy. Right. So, I mean, that's the thing is that right now, I mean, we're in kind of this limbo state where I do think we're going to see large price inflation. I'm surprised it hasn't hit yet. And it's, um, I think it's the kind of thing where it's Wiley Coyote running off the cliff and until he looks down, he's not going to fall. Right? <laughs> I think the reason we haven't seen it yet is just because most investors now have convinced themselves like, oh, okay, I guess the Fed's actually, you know, not going to, that all those purchases they've made aren't leading to inflation. Um, but I do think it's going to hit at some point. And the idea is that, yeah, if you've got your money 
in a whole life policy. You can get at it really quickly when you think that move is coming if you want to you know, hedge yourself with gold coins or whatever it is you want to do. Now, as far as, far as uh, insurance companies are concerned, because I know you met with a, with a few in, in doing your research for, for the book, uh, what's your take on the soundness of, of mutual life insurance companies? Yeah, we, uh, we did talk to a few different people. They, uh, they're what you would hope for. You know, they were very conservative, uh, both in terms of just, you know, their general outlook on life and also, uh, you know, politically in the sense that they were very skeptical of, of what the Obama administration had been doing. I mean, we, we did the research about a year ago, was doing at that point. You know, they didn't think that that was a good way to help the economy. And we, and we had talked with them, frankly, about this issue of, of a potential large-scale price inflation because that you know that's the the one knock against uh, insurance companies. If you think large price inflation is coming, you might say, well, gee, aren't you guys pretty heavily invested in bonds, mm-hmm. and isn't that going to kill you guys? And so that yeah, they were pretty frank about it, and they were saying, yeah, it, it would there would be a transition period because you know if they're sitting on longer-term bonds, you know it, it would take a while for those things to roll over. Um, but w- one of the the things they did mention, and I thought this was a pretty good um, reaction. Was they said, well, for the individual policyholder, though, if, if large inflation comes, it's a double-edged sword. Because yeah, on the one hand, the you know projected cash values that you have from your policy, that's not going to buy you as much if every if, if the price of bread goes up to you know five dollars a loaf or something. But on the other hand, your policy, your premium payments are going to be easier for you to make, you know, in real terms too. So. It's um, I, there's this misconception a lot of people have that when you sign up for a, a long term, you know, right now if you open up a new whole life policy, that you somehow bought a hundred thousand dollars worth of bonds. That's not really true. You've just locked yourself into a, a stream of cash payments that you're going to make for the next thirty, forty years or whatever it is, and then they're locking themselves into giving you these promised uh, death benefit payments if you ever get hit by a bus. <laughs> so, you know, it's so the inflation kind of cuts both ways there. So it's really not. Is, is bad if, if you think price inflation is coming as, as some people think originally or initially. And yeah, just to answer your question, I, I'm definitely more comfortable having my, you know, doing business with these mutual life insurance companies than I would be putting my money with uh, a mutual fund that has it spread around the S&P 500, let's say. But I, I do think that the, the life insurance guys are more independent and that they are uh, first and foremost, concerned with safety and, and maintaining your principal, and that uh, you know that they they're not flawless. Something you could always imagine events that would that would wipe them out. But I think it would be I would be very surprised if things happened that wiped out the insurance companies and left the major investment banks standing, and that people would have slapped their heads and say, "Oh, I really wish I had put my money in the stock market." And what's and I guess what's comforting comforting as well on top of what you said is is the fact that. You know the, these insurance companies have been around uh, through through these tough cyclical downturns. They they've been around uh, during the uh, the different recessions that we've had, the, the Great Depression for for uh, for goodness sakes, and 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 they've uh, they've paid their dividends, uh, tried and true through the entire uh, tumultuous time. Um, I w- I wanted to, to before we end, which will be in just a couple minutes. I I wanted to uh, to to give credence to one of the things that you said about. Uh, the whole idea behind uh, stimulating this this entrepreneurial uh, idea within individuals. Um, I I think that you know a, as individuals we've we've become accustomed to the average nine to five, the forty hour work week, uh, the the set amount of of income, and you know I've seen and talked to individuals that you know were in professions twenty five, thirty, thirty five years 
and did not think at all that they were going to uh, to be laid off. But uh, because of cutbacks and so forth, uh, they were, and they were they were caught with uh, something that they never really prepared for and had to liquidate their 401k, liquidate mutual funds to to be able to weather the the storm. Uh, but the the whole idea of uh, the the banking system, in a sense, is uh, is that it does kind of engage that entrepreneurial idea where individuals can use the money to start up the the snow cone stand, or they can you know start up the lawn mowing business for their their teenager, or uh, they can start the dog <laughs> the dog walking dog walking company. So it gives you an idea that hey, my money is going to be growing inside my my policy anyway. Utilizing the loan provisions against the cash value will facilitate. Uh, capital contributions into a, a new business or a franchise or something that's going to provide that additional additional income, uh, and so that, I I love what you said in in regards to that. Uh, but what what I wanted to do kind of in in conclusion is uh, just give you the opportunity to, to to reference the website where individuals can go and and purchase uh, your your book. And I know that you've written other books uh, as well, which you alluded to in the beginning. And I, I wanted you to 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 say that uh, as well. And then we're also going to have links to, to both those uh, corresponding websites on, on our website. Well, sure. So, yeah, uh, the book, again, is How Privatized Banking Really Works by uh, Carlos Lara, which is L-A-R-A, and myself, Robert Murphy. Uh, the, the place to get that is just usatrustonline.com, or you can get it at Amazon. It's there as well. And uh, my personal website is consultingbyrpm.com. So if people want to go there, they can see all the different books I've written and, and my blog and so forth. Okay, awesome. And like I said, I'll have those links uh, on on our blog and also the the podcast feed as well. Uh, but Bob, it was uh, it was awesome having you on. It uh, I hope you come back and and visit us and and be on here in the next couple of months if that's okay. Well, sure thing, Patrick. Thanks a lot for having me. Okay, everybody, uh, you can go onto our website www.paradigmlife.net forward slash blog to download. Uh, our previous podcasts, and also uh, to to have the links for uh, for Bob's uh, site, so you can order his his book. Um, thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.